brothers, sisters, and friends. This may remind you a little bit about what Brother Ned O'Kelly was talking about the other night when he spoke on the necessity of maintaining law and rules and regulations in any endeavor that we participate in. And certainly, this being a Bible school, and I think we would all readily agree that the whole purpose of the Bible school is to learn more of God's Word and to try to lead our lives or to build us up where that we might lead the type of lives that might be more pleasing in God's sight. And first, I'd like to read just a little bit from a small book that I have, and this is primarily concerned with this subject of law that we talked about earlier and the necessity for having certain laws and the necessity for having principles to guide us in all our actions. And this is actually dealing with cause and effect, or actually the little topic here is headed up, Effects Require Causes. Nothing that happens in the world happens by chance. God is a God of order. Everything is arranged upon definite principles and never at random. The world, even the religious world, is governed by law. Character is governed by law. Happiness is governed by law. The Christian experiences are governed by law. Men forgetting this expect rest, joy, peace, faith to drop into their souls from the air like snow or rain. But in point of fact, they do not do so. And if they did, they would no less have their origin in previous activities and be controlled by natural laws. Rain and snow do drop from the air, but not without a long previous history. They are the mature effects of former causes. Equally so are rest and peace and joy. They too have each a previous history. Storms and winds and calms are not accidents, but are brought about by antecedent circumstances. Rest and peace are but calms in man's inward nature and arise through causes as definite and as inevitable. Realize it thoroughly, it is a methodical, not an accidental world. If a housewife turns out a good cake, it is the result of a sound recipe carefully applied. She cannot mix the assigned ingredients and fire them for the appropriate time without producing the result. It is not she who has made the cake, it is nature. She brings related things together, sets causes at work. These causes bring about the result. She is not a creator but an intermediary. She does not expect random causes to produce specific effects. Random ingredients would only produce random cakes. So it is in the making of Christian experiences. Certain lines are followed, certain effects are the result. These effects cannot but be the result. But the result can never take place without the previous cause. To expect results without antecedents is to expect cakes without ingredients. What must one work at? 
What is that which if duly learned will find the soul of man in rest? Christ answers without the least hesitation. He specifies two things, meekness and lowliness. Learn of me, he says, for I am meek and lowly in heart. Now these two things are not chosen at random. To these accomplishments in a special way, rest is attached. Learn these in short and you have already found rest. These as they stand are direct causes of rest. We'll produce it at once, cannot but produce it at once. And if you think for a single moment, you will see how this is necessarily so. For causes are never arbitrary. And the connection between antecedent and consequent here and everywhere lies deep in the nature of things. What is the connection then? I answer by, by a further question. What are the chief causes of unrest? If you know yourself, you will answer pride, selfishness, and ambition. As you look back upon the past years of your life, is it not true that its unhappiness has chiefly come from the succession of personal mortifications and almost trivial disappointments which the intercourse of life has brought to you? Great trials come at lengthened intervals, and we rise to breast them. But it is the petty friction of our everyday life with one another. I think this is something that bears repeating. But it is the petty friction of our everyday life with one another, the jar of business or of work, the discord of the domestic circle, the collapse of our ambition, the crossing of our will, the taking down of our conceit, which make inward peace impossible. Wounded vanity, then, disappointed hope, unsatisfied selfishness, these are the old, vulgar, universal sources of man's unrest. Now, it is obvious why Christ pointed out as the two chief objects for attainment the exact opposites of these. To meekness and lowliness, these things simply do not exist. They cure unrest by making it impossible. These remedies do not trifle with surface symptoms. They strike at once at removing causes. The ceaseless chagrin of a self-centered life can be removed at once by learning meekness and lowliness of heart. He who learns them is forever proof against it. He lives henceforth to charm life. Christianity is a fine inoculation, a transfusion of healthy blood into an anemic or poisoned soul. No fever can attack a perfectly sound body. No fever of unrest can disturb a soul which has breathed the air or learned the ways of Christ. We aspire to the top to look for rest. It lies at the bottom. Water rests only when it gets to the lowest place. So do men, hence be lowly. The man who has no opinion of himself at all can never be hurt if others do not acknowledge him. Hence be meek. He who is without expectation cannot fret if nothing comes to him. It is self-evident that these things are so. The lowly man and the meek man are really above all other men, above all other things. They dominate the world because they do not care for it. The miser does not possess gold, gold possesses him. But the meek possess it. The meek, said Christ, inherit the earth. They do not buy it, 
they do not conquer it, but they inherit it. And I think we would all agree that what I've just read here tends to be on a very idealistic plane, and I certainly, I think any brother that tries to exhort a group would certainly, after reading something like this, I certainly don't want anyone in the audience thinking that, uh, that I think I measure up to all that's been said here, because frankly, I don't think any of us can quite measure up to what I've just read here as far as trying to attain such a meek and lowly opinion of ourselves. But again, as I say, this certainly is, is very idealistic, and of course I think we as brothers and sisters of Christ should be trying to attain to the ideal which Christ has set for us. And we know that this is something that's just a constant struggle. It's a lifelong struggle, and it's certainly not something that comes easy. And really, what I'd primarily like to talk about this morning, I'd like to talk about the attributes of meekness, humility, and submission. And I'd like to turn over to Psalms chapter 46, and there are a couple of verses there I'd like to read. Verse 1, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. And then verse 10, Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the heathen. I will be exalted in the earth. And then turning over to Isaiah, Reading from Isaiah, chapter 2, verse 11. The lofty looks of man shall be humbled, and the haughtiness of man shall be bowed down, and the Lord alone shall be exalted in that day. And the loftiness of man shall be bowed down, and the haughtiness of men shall be made low, and the Lord alone shall be exalted in that day. Now, I think we can gather from these few verses that we've just read that we certainly should try to attain to a state of being meek and being humble and being submissive to God's will because I think we can all agree that certainly we cannot ever expect to be pleasing unto God until we have developed these attributes to some degree at least. And really, I think these three attributes of meekness, humility, and submission, I think they probably describe very well the moods that we need to try to develop where we can best really get to know God. As we were admonished over in the psalm that I just read, to be still and know God. This implies that in order for us to really get to know God, we have to put ourselves in a position where we're willing to listen to God because if we're talking, we can't very well be still and know anything. So first, I think we have to get the right perspective as to what our relationship to God is. We need to remember first that God is the supreme being. He is the revelator and that we are mere mortals. And God, in his wonderful mercy, he's condescended to us so that we might have the wonderful privilege of receiving his revealed word. And we certainly have no inherent right of access to God's plan of salvation. And certainly it's ridiculous to think that we can approach God and say, well, 
I, I'm, I'm really willing to approach you if, if you'll let me do it on my own terms. We, we have no right whatsoever to dictate to God the terms upon which we are willing to accept his gracious offer. Just to show you how ridiculous this might appear, I'd like to turn over to Isaiah chapter 45 and read a few verses. And this should help show us exactly what our relationship to God should be and just how God looks down upon us in his estimation. Remember him being the supreme being and we being mere mortals of dust and ashes. Reading from Isaiah chapter 45, beginning with verse 9. Woe unto him that striveth with his maker. Let the potsherd strive with the potsherds of the earth. Shall the clay say to him that fashioneth it, What makest thou, or thy work? He hath no hands. Woe unto him that saith unto his father, What begettest thou, or to the woman? What hast thou brought forth? Thus saith the Lord, the Holy One of Israel, and his maker, Ask me of things to come concerning my sons, and concerning the work of my hands. Command ye me. I have made the earth and created man upon it. I, even my hands, have stretched out the heavens, and all their hosts have I commanded. I have raised him up in righteousness, and I will direct all his ways. He shall build my city, and he shall let go my captives. Not for price nor reward, saith the Lord of hosts. I'd also like to turn over the New Testament to Romans, the ninth chapter. Read a couple of verses here, 20 and 21. Nay, but, O man, who art thou that repliest against God? Shall the thing formed say to him that formed it, Why hast thou made me thus? Hath not the potter power over the clay of the same lump to make one vessel unto honor and another unto dishonor? Well, I think certainly from these verses that we just read, we, we should all be able to realize that we are merely just like clay in the potter's hand in God's sight. I mean, God is the supreme being. And he can mold us however he so desires to do. And we have no right whatsoever to question what he does. We certainly have a right to try to maybe understand what he does. And I think really God has revealed enough to us in his word that we can pretty well understand the method in which God chooses to operate. And certainly there are some things that might be... <clears throat> somewhat hard to understand, but I think, again, if we realize that God is the supreme being and that he does expect us to develop certain attributes, and of course, this morning, again, we're talking about basically meekness, humility, and submission, I think if we begin to realize this, we, we get more and more away from this attitude of asking questions as to why maybe God has done certain things. I think we can develop an attitude where we learn more from the word and we begin to accept things that God has done and we as we become more meek and more humble things don't seem to bother us quite as much I don't believe of course if we truly heed the admonition that was given us over in that psalm to be still and know that I am God we will all come to the realization that to truly know God is to know God's word and to let the influence of God's word direct our lives this is really what is meant by walking after the Spirit. 
or being led of the Spirit. We should all strive to reach and hopefully maintain that state in our spiritual lives where we are indeed motivated by the Word of God in our thoughts and interactions. You know, this walking after the Spirit or being led of the Spirit, it's not something that's really that supernatural or anything like that. It's merely letting God's Word have such an influence in our lives that in any situation that we encounter, we can rely upon God's Word to provide us direction as to how we should react. And really, it's not that mystifying a thing if we really become familiar with God's Word because really, God's Word is called the Spirit Word, and this is really the way we come in contact with the Spirit through the Word. So walking after the Spirit or being led of the Spirit, we're not talking about some kind of stupefying influence where we go around, you know, kind of in a daze or kind of uh, on a cloud and uh, feeling that we can do no wrong. We know that really walking after the Spirit, we should act in a very rational manner, and we should let the Word dictate to us as to how we should react to certain situations. And, you know, I'd like to turn again over to Isaiah because, you know, we've been talking a lot about God's Word and we hear from the platform all the time that God's Word says this and that God's Word says that and that certain things are to be accomplished. And we know that we hear that Christ is going to return to this earth. We've been hearing this for years. It's been preached for years, and yet some people sometimes begin to wonder, well, really, is, is God's Word going to accomplish that which He has said it would? Well, we believe that God's Word is now taking out a people for His name, and that nothing, and really nothing, absolutely nothing, can deter this mission. And I'd like to turn over to Isaiah chapter 55 and read just a few verses. that show that this, that God's Word is going to accomplish what He has said it will. Beginning with verse 8, and again, I think these verses here should particularly bring home to us just what our attitude should be as far as being a meek and humble person, because I think if we really listen to these words, we can really get the true picture of just where we stand in relation to God. We need to remember at all times that he is the supreme being and that we are mere human beings. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, saith the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. For as the rain cometh down and the snow from heaven, and returneth not thither, but watereth the earth, and maketh it bring forth in bud, that it may give seed to the sower and bread to the eater. So shall my word be that goeth forth out of my mouth. It shall not return unto me void, but it shall accomplish that which I please, and it shall prosper in the thing whereto I send it. So we can see there that just as sure as the rain and snow come down from heaven, God's word is going to accomplish what he has said it would. Well, you know, we've been talking a lot about God's Word and about the surety of it and about how that it encourages us to develop a humble, meek spirit and a submissive spirit. And, you know, I think we can relate back to the children of Israel. And we know that they were given 
certain commandments, and they were given certain laws that they had to obey if they expected to find favor in God's sight. And you know, really, we're pretty much in the same position as was Israel in the wilderness when Moses had delivered the Ten Commandments to the children. And I'm sure that most of us can remember the warning which Moses gave to the children. We must remember that Moses was acting as a direct agent for God or as a messenger for God. And we know he said, Behold, I set before you this day a blessing and a curse. We know that this would be a blessing if obeyed and a curse if disobeyed. And of course, too, we know that prosperity in the natural sense as well as the spiritual sense was contingent on obedience to the commandments which had been given to the Israelites. And you know, we're, the, we're recipients of these same commandments just as the Israelites were. And obedience to them is just as necessary and just as essential for us today as it was for Israel back in the time of Moses. Now getting back to this word, we know that the word of God was first given to the utterance of men through the power of the Holy Spirit. But we know, also know now that this word has extended its operations into the hearts of all men who hear it and who are willing and obedient to it. And of course the word here, it, it's not of course just mere letters on a page, and still less is it this particular version or that particular version. The word is really the will and purpose of God. And we know that those who assent to the word receive the Spirit of God into their hearts, thus begetting a new man, a righteous and eternal man. And of course we have the other side of the coin too, those who follow the will and purpose of man, they assent to their own lust. And we can quote from the Apostle James, For we know that when lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin, and sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. The parallel here is obvious, and this is exactly why the Apostle James has written in the first chapter of James, Do not err, my beloved brethren, Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and cometh down from the Father of light, with whom is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. Of his own will beget he us with the word of truth, that we should be a kind of firstfruits of his creatures. The will to beget is certainly God's. The assent to God's will is certainly man. And so James continues, Receive with meekness the engrafted word which is able to save your souls. God resisteth the proud, but giveth grace unto the humble. Submit yourselves therefore to God. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he shall lift you up. Meekness, humility, and submission again. These are the attributes a man must show and which God does not supply. All else God does supply, even to the will to carry out his purpose once the decision to serve God has been made. It is in this way that God strengthens the feeble knees and lifts up the hands that hang down. For he is able to save to the uttermost them that come to him by Jesus Christ. 
You know, in view of the things that we've just been talking about here the last few minutes, I think each of us could probably ask ourselves a very personal and a very searching question. We have accepted Christ. Will Christ accept us? Well, you know, some people might kind of object to a question of this nature because, you know, they might say, well, this, this is really a question which is Christ's prerogative to answer and his prerogative alone. Well, no doubt. I don't think anyone would deny that this is certainly within Christ's prerogative to answer and only he can either accept or reject us. But I think that we, we can discuss this question because we know that the principles upon which Christ's choice will be made or will be determined as to whether we are accepted by Christ or rejected by Christ, we know that these principles have been abundantly revealed to us through the Word. I mean, what I'm really saying is that I don't think any of us could deny that certainly it is Christ's prerogative to answer the question or to make the decision. But I also don't think that any of us could deny that we have ample principles or ample uh, questions, ample rules and uh, doctrine that are given to us through the Word that we know essentially what this decision is going to be based upon. And so I think with this in mind, this is something that we certainly can consider and can discuss. And I think we can do it with profit because I think we do need to realize that certainly eternal life is within the grasp of each of us, but we also have to accept the reality, too, that it's also possible that we can be rejected. So we, we better get familiar with the principles upon which this choice will be determined. Of course, I realize, you know, we're living in a very dark and ignorant age, we might say, as far as ignorance of God's Word. And today I realize that people in general are accustomed to think that really it's enough if we accept Christ. That some people think really we even do Christ a favor, so to speak, by allowing ourselves to be saved. Of course, we realize that certainly this is not true, and we realize too that the great mass of people that profess this, they don't really realize what really being saved is all about. They don't really have a very good understanding of the principles upon which, upon which salvation is based. And we note, it is true that Christ has said, him that cometh unto me I will in no wise cast out. But I think here there's a lot more involved in the coming unto Christ than most people seem to realize. Coming unto Christ means much more humility, much more anxiety, much more sincerity, and much more enthusiasm than would satisfy a modern clergyman. In fact, Christ speaks of many who will come to him in that day anxious to be saved. And these people will claim admittance to Christ's kingdom, and they will even recite the grounds of their claim in the wonderful works done in his name. And we know that these people do come to Christ in a sense, but not in the right sense. And we know that they will be cast out, although he had said in the other case that he would in no wise cast out the man coming to him. 
So I think, I think we can see here that there are certain laws, there are certain principles that God has made known unto man, and it, indeed it does make a difference exactly what we believe. It's, it's not merely enough to say that we acknowledge God as the supreme being and that we acknowledge Christ as being the Son of God. We have to realize considerably more than this. First of all, we have to realize the situation in which we are in the sight of God in our natural condition. We, we need to realize that we're born into this world in a state of alienation, and there has to be a means of reconciliation provided. And of course, we realize that Christ is this means of reconciliation. But we have to become related to Christ through the proper channels with the correct understanding of his nature. Well, we might at this point ask the question, well, just who among the mass of humanity that clamor for Christ's favor will be chosen? I think an appropriate answer for this question can be found in the very simple, yet the very comprehensive declaration by David. I'd like to turn over to Psalm chapter 4. I'd like to read this entire chapter. It's only eight verses, and then there's a verse in here that I would like to turn to, but reading from Psalm chapter 4, Hear me when I call, O God of my righteousness. Thou hast enlarged me when I was in distress. Have mercy upon me and hear my prayer. O ye sons of men, how long will ye turn my glory into shame? How long will ye love vanity and seek after leasing? But know that the Lord has set apart him that is godly for himself. The Lord will hear when I call unto him. Stand in awe and sin not. Commune with your own heart upon your bed and be still. Offer the sacrifices of righteousness and put your trust in the Lord. There be many that say, Who will show us any good? Lord, lift thou up the light of thy countenance upon us. Thou hast put gladness in my heart more than in the time that their corn and their wine increased. I will both lay me down in peace and sleep, for thou, Lord, only makest me dwell in safety. Well, as I said just a minute ago, I said I think an appropriate answer for the question, just who among the mass of humanity that clamor for Christ's favor will be chosen, is given by David when he says the Lord has chosen him that is godly for himself. Him that is godly. Here is something we can consider. How shall we know him that is considered to be godly? How shall we learn what is meant by the word him that is godly? There's really only one way that we may know. We know that God has not left us without instruction as to what constitutes godliness in his estimation. And I'd like to put particular emphasis on the word godliness in his estimation. Really, we, not, we need not be concerned about anyone else's estimation other than God's as far as trying to define what really constitutes godliness. In fact, we'll waste our time if we try to find out among the generalities of men as to what entitles a man to be described by the words, him that is godly. The idea of godliness has in our time evaporated to next to nothing. It is almost an obsolete term, and where it is not obsolete, 
It is used to describe a state of mind that is totally different from the godliness known to the writings of Moses or the prophets or the apostles. Godliness today is popularly conceived to be a sentimentalized state of mind in which a man, somewhat benevolently inclined, believes in a supreme being and is in a general way disposed to have some regard to questions of right or wrong. You'll notice there that we're speaking in fairly general terms and we're doing this for a purpose because I think we would all agree that most people today look upon godliness as being a rather general term. And of course, I think really that we certainly could not subscribe to a definition of godliness such as that. To continue with a little bit more of the definition of godliness in the sense as it's used today in the world, such a man need not have very definite ideas about God. He need not have any theory about eternity or of duty toward God. He does not have to be bound by any sincere convictions on these matters one way or another. He really does not even have to be real sure about a supreme being. Provided he is kind and honest, interested in goodness, and prepared to be charitable in the sense of allowing that all men may be in the right and that nothing, I say nothing, is particularly wrong, he is a godly man according to the perverted sense of the term as it is used today. This is a little bit reminiscent the other night when Brother Ned spoke of doing your own thing. This is what so many people today believe. They feel like this. They're, they have the right to do their own thing, to do whatever they wish to do, and not to be restricted by any definite laws or any definite rules or any definite regulations. And this is particularly so in a scriptural sense. You know, the, we, we, we're seeing now what the churches out in the world like to call the ecumenical movement. And really all this is, this is just a complete abdication of any recognized body of beliefs or any strict interpretations of any doctrinal points. It's just the idea that, well, you know, let's all try to get along and let's, you know, really we all pretty well believe pretty much alike. And, you know, I may not believe exactly what you believe and you may not believe exactly what I believe, but, but really does it make that much difference? We're all human beings and we're all part of the family of man and we all know that that God is a very loving God and he's up in heaven looking down on us and he's willing to excuse our little idiosyncrasies or our little faults and really this idea of God pouring out vengeance upon the earth you know really that I just can't I just can't accept that God you know everybody talks about God being full of love and, and being like a father to us and you know really it's just it's just hard to imagine a, a God being like you say he will be of course we realize that this, this is all very appealing to the flesh. You know, it's very pleasant to think that, you know, that really everything's going to work out all right and there's, there's no point getting uptight about these things. But, you know, the world is in bad shape, but really it's always been in bad shape. And, you know, man's real smart and uh, we'll figure out these pollution problems. And, you know, uh, President Nixon is, is making a lot of progress with Russia and China and Really, I, you know, I think you people that, that try to tell me that there's certain scriptural principles that have to be believed and obeyed, uh, 
you know, I, I don't know. I think you're just a little bit narrow-minded, and uh, you don't you don't allow for any self-expression on the part of individuals. Well, this this is true. I, I think I think we would have to admit that God he he allows self-expression to a certain extent, but God does not allow self-expression in any way which we desire to do it. I mean, God has laid down some very narrow pathways that we should strive to walk in. And this is really what is really meant by godliness, trying to, trying to use God as our example and especially trying to use Christ as our example and try to conduct our lives in the way in which he conducted his life. Now, I'm not, you know, I don't mean to appear real negative because I realize that some of the qualities that I enumerated a while ago, you know, in a somewhat facetious manner, I realize that I enumerated some pretty good qualities. But really, I think we would have to agree that true godliness, as exemplified in the Bible, is exemplified by such men as Abel, Noah, Abraham, Moses, David. We, we could go on for several minutes. Of course, the greatest exemplification of true godliness that we have in the Scripture is Jesus Christ. He is, he is the ultimate example of a man that was truly godly after the divine pattern. And really, there, there is no other true pattern of godliness other than the one that God has set forth. And, of course, we know that Christ was the perfect example of godliness. We can... I'm going to talk about a word here a minute that I'm going to dwell on just a little bit. But, you know, I think we can reasonably say that godliness is probably best manifested in the idea of a daily and a continual effort to please God. And certainly we would like to think that this effort to please God is the product of a sober and a sound mind. In fact, I'd like to read from Romans chapter 12 just a few verses that I think will bear this out. I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that ye may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. You know, really, the word reasonable here in the last part of this first verse you know, the apostle has enumerated certain things there that should be done. Well, essentially the idea of presenting our bodies as a living sacrifice that we might be holy and acceptable unto God. But he qualifies that or he gives it a stamp of approval by saying that this is only our reasonable service. Well, now, you know, the word reasonable, we, we can look at it in a couple of ways. I think we can look upon reasonable here as representing something certainly within within reason or not being unreasonable and i think when you know when we really think about the promises that god has made to us i think really if we if we're really honest with ourselves i think we would have to agree that really that anything god asks us to do in view of the promises that he has made and the things that he has promised to us I don't, I don't see how we could do anything that God would ask us to do as being unreasonable. When we think about what God is holding out for us, I, I just don't see how that anything that God would ask of us 
could be construed as being unreasonable. As I say, we can reasonably say that godliness is probably best manifested in the idea of a daily and continual effort to please God. And this is the product of a sober and sound mind. You know, there's nothing fanatical or suggestive of some religious imbalance in the idea of sincere service to God. Fanaticism comes when men think that God is only to be found in one place or in connection with one subject. I'd like to repeat that. Fanaticism comes when men think that God is only to be found in one place or in connection with one subject. When we recognize the simple truth that for the true Christian, the law of God enters into everything, we recognize that the true Son of God is the one who goes cheerfully all the day, neither terror-stricken nor of doubtful mind, but trying to live in this sin-stricken world as God would have him live. He knows that he has often sinned through the weakness of human flesh, but he also knows that there is forgiveness with God, that he may be feared as the all-wise and loving Father. I'd like to turn over and I'd like to conclude by reading from Colossians, the third chapter. If ye then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ set us on the right hand of God. Set your affection on things above, not on things on the earth. For ye are dead, and your life is hid with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, shall appear, then shall ye also appear with him in glory. Mortify, therefore, your members which are upon the earth, fornication, uncleanness, inordinate affection, evil concupiscence, and covetousness, which is idolatry. For which things sake the wrath of God cometh on the children of disobedience in the which ye also walked some time when ye lived in them. But now ye also put off all these, anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy communication out of your mouth. Lie not one to another, seeing that ye have put off the old man with his deeds, and have put on the new man which is renewed in knowledge after the image of him that created him. Where there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcision nor uncircumcision, barbarian, Scythian, bond nor free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on, therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, bowels of mercy, kindness, humbleness of mind, meekness, long-suffering, forbearing one another and forgiving one another. If any man have a quarrel against any, even as Christ forgave you, so also do ye. And above all these things put on charity, which is the bond of perfectness. And let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to the which also ye are called in one body, and be ye thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. And whatsoever ye do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God and the Father by him. Wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands, as it is fit in the Lord, Husbands, love your wives, and be not bitter against them. Children, obey your parents in all things, for this is well-pleasing unto the Lord. Fathers, provoke not your children to anger, lest they be discouraged. 
servants obeying all things your masters according to the flesh, not with eye service as men pleasers, but in singleness of heart, fearing God. And whatsoever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not unto men, knowing that of the Lord you shall receive the reward of the inheritance, for ye serve the Lord Christ. But he that doeth wrong shall receive for the wrong which he hath done, and there is no...